welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I am Tracy Hodgner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. If you would like to hear episodes of this show you may have missed, please go to RadioPetLady.com and visit the podcast library. You can also listen to all the Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with pet experts, including Cat Chat, The Pet Cancer Vet, Good Dogs, The Expert Vet, Exotic Pets, Holistic Vets, Pet Food Advisors, Humane Talk, and Authors on Animals. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content, and is brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Precious Cat Litter, and Waruva, a privately owned pet food company named after the owner's rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Their brands are Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen in Pouches, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brand, created for finicky felines and fussy little dogs. All their cans and pouches are made in a human food facility, which means that every ingredient is good enough for people to eat, if your kitty will share. I have some delightful guests today. One different than the other, I'll tell you that. You might have read an amazing op-ed about Sophie the Cat's death in the New York Times by Margot Rabb. She's going to read it for us, which is going to be a real treat for me and I hope for you. Rabbi Douglas Krantz is going to come on and talk about his absolute 10-year obsession with figuring out how to feed his dog, Russell, the right thing and how happy he was to meet me. And then Stacey Coleman, who's the director of the Animal Farm Foundation, which uh, supports Pitbull, Pitbull Love is going to talk about the majority project. So we have a lot of fun ahead, but my the first and most delightful fun is going to be saying hi to Margot Rabb. Welcome to the show, Margot. What a beautiful piece of writing. I bet you got lots of comments from your op-ed in the New York Times, didn't you? I did, and thank you. It's so nice to be here. Well, you know, as, as another writer, there's just those times when you read something written and you say, wow. Just wow. She nailed that all the way home. And it's just... On so many levels, a beautiful piece of writing. I We could sit here and talk for the whole time about the difference in the way human death and animal death affects us or the difference in the way that care is delivered. But I really think that what you wrote encompasses all of that. So if, if you have a, a wonderful book coming out called Kissing in America that's coming out in May, and we'll have you back. And it has some some animal things in it to justify you being on Dog Talk and, and <laughs> Kitties too. But this one justifies you right right up top. So if there's anything you want to say about it, other than the fact that it was on the opinion pages of the New York Times in the menagerie um, opinionator section, um, wonderful. And if not, just go right ahead and, and read this beautiful piece of writing. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to read it. It was really heartening to hear responses of readers who'd also lost pets. I um, I know I had a hard time writing the piece, it was yes. hard to get it right. You know, Sophie died quite a while ago and my uh, mom had died. Actually, the piece was published just coincidentally on the day that was the 24th anniversary of her death. Oh my so goodness. 20, oh yeah, it was just, my sister texted me and she said, did you ask for that date? My goodness. And I said, it was just a coincidence. So, Well, I, I also was, want to say that just on a personal note that having lost a number of dogs and, and the only mother I was ever going to have. I, I lost my mother a very long time ago, too, and had such a similar experience to yours with the human medical world. 
it was a chilling reminder of just how how harsh and bleak that landscape can be. And you had such a great experience, as as you pointed out, hard to think about Sophie dying as being great. But the way you captured it, uh, it's just there's no point in my saying anything more. There's no superlative I can say that will equal the the pleasure of hearing it. So, Margot Rab, in my cat's death, a human comfort. Please read it for us. Okay, thank you. Recently, when I told a friend about my cat's death from cancer, I found myself saying, it was such a better experience than when my mom died. I realized how crazy it sounded. I hadn't meant to compare their deaths like accommodations on TripAdvisor, but it was true. My mother died 24 years ago when I was still in my teens. She was given a diagnosis of metastatic melanoma on a Thursday night. Her initial symptom was a stomach ache and died the following Saturday. During those nine days, as her condition worsened, the doctors told me what was happening only during brief clinical updates in the hallway. The gastroenterologist had a bulbous beige face. I called him Dr. Tuber. She's got a one in 1,000 chance if you can get her to take the drugs and stop starving herself, Dr. Tuber told me. He was frustrated that she had no appetite since she was constantly vomiting. My father's cardiologist, who we called Dr. Eeyore, stopped me in the hallway with news as well. Statistically, men who lose their spouses have a big risk of a heart attack in the next year, he said. I never cried during these drive-by hallway death knells. I adhered to the unwritten hospital rule to remain stone-faced like the guards at Buckingham Palace. When I needed to cry, I hid in a stall in the hospital bathroom. One afternoon, the social worker assigned to my mom caught me coming out of the stall, wiping my eyes. What are you crying about? What's wrong? She asked, as if there was some inexplicable reason. I stood there dumbfounded. What you should do, she told me, is head down the street to Macy's and go shopping. More than 15 years later, my husband and I dropped our cat, Sophie, off at the veterinarian for tests because she had a teary eye, as if she was weeping. When we picked her up, Dr. Young and her partner, Juliet, called us into their office and told us that Sophie was dying, also of skin cancer. She had squamous cell carcinoma, a tumor that had started in her mouth and created pressure, which caused her eye to tear. We discussed treatment, quality of life care, and the prognosis. She might live three months. Juliet, a licensed social worker, hugged me. She handed me tissues. We stayed in their office for nearly an hour. We'll give her the best care we can, Juliet told us. After that, Juliet called me regularly to check in. I told her how the only pet I'd lost was my overweight gerbil, Snuffy, who died when he got stuck in the habit trail and was now buried in a chocolate Pop-Tart box in the yard of my childhood home in Queens. Sophie's the first animal I've truly loved, I said. I told her how Sophie was my constant companion since I worked at home. She liked to sleep in front of my laptop like an ergonomic wrist pad. She had an epic romance with a cat we called Window Friend, who'd visit our fire escape daily to stare at Sophie longingly through the window. They'd press their faces against the glass like Pyramus and Disby. She liked to sit on our Brooklyn stoop in a large flower pot and watch the passers-by. She liked to eat my manuscripts. And I thought often of how my mom died. We were at the foot of her hospital bed when she stopped breathing, and my sister screamed, and I cried. We were in a semi-private room, 
Everything we said was overheard by an older woman with a sharp face whose elderly mother was dying in the next bed. Oi, 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 her mother kept chanting. That roommate had been an improvement over the woman who'd shared my mom's room the night before. She wouldn't stop shrieking. We tried to get my mother moved to another room, but they'd said none were available. The woman hollered all night long. Three months after Sophie's diagnosis, Dr. Young recommended surgery to try to extend her life a little longer. But a few minutes after the surgery ended, Sophie died. Zenny, a vet tech, brought her body to me swaddled in a pink blanket. He had tears in his eyes as he told me how quickly she'd changed. She'd been standing up after the surgery and recovering, and then she lay flat. She'd stopped breathing. They tried to revive her. They tried and tried, he'd said. Both Juliet and Dr. Young embraced me for a long time as I cried. Sophie looked peaceful. She had pink bandages on her neck and her paw with flower and heart stickers on them. I kissed her fur. Dr. Young and Juliet sat with me for over an hour and answered all my questions. Had the surgery been a bad decision? Would euthanasia have been better? Dr. Young assured me that it was what she would have done for her own cat. Always remember that you did the right thing, she said. Always hold that close to your heart. Never blame or doubt yourself, she told me. After my mom died, I blamed and doubted myself. I blamed myself for not staying overnight with her in the hospital where she felt scared and lonely. I still blame myself for not working harder to get her moved from the shrieking woman's room, and I wonder if that sleepless night hastened her death. I doubted whether I did everything I could to make her comfortable in her last days. I blamed myself, too, when seven years after my mother's death, Dr. Eeyore's prophecy came true. My father felt a tightness in his chest, and I rode with him in a taxi to the same hospital where my mom had died. Staff ran tests in the ER and told me he was fine, but kept him overnight for observation. Dr. Eeyore called me the next day and told me to come at once. My father had suffered a major heart attack. When he arrived at the hospital, he was already dead. I only spent a few minutes with his body. I overheard a resident say, we need that room. In Juliet's office, they let me stay on their couch with Sophie's body for as long as I wanted. My husband left work and met me there. How long do you want to stay? He asked me, staring at her body on my lap. Forever. I said. I pictured myself wandering around the city, still holding my dead cat. Maybe my friends wouldn't notice. Maybe they'd mistake her for a fur stole. When I told them about Sophie's diagnosis, weeping, sometimes I felt ashamed to admit that I felt such deep grief over a cat. I wrote in my diary, the strange thing is it's not dissimilar from the grief I felt for mommy and daddy, how the grief displaces everything and nothing feels the same anymore. Juliet called several times after Sophie died. She invited me to join a grief group that she ran, and though I never attended it, I liked knowing that I could if I needed it. I thought again of my mother's death and the bill that we received afterward from her longtime therapist without a condolence note, charging us for a few phone calls my mom had made to her from her hospital bed as she was dying. Juliet never sent us a bill. As the years passed and I tried to make sense of those deaths, at first I felt angry at Dr. Tuber and Dr. Eeyore for what I saw as their lack of compassion, 
especially compared to Dr. Young and Juliet. As time went on, though, the anger disappeared, and what was left was mostly questions. Was it because Sophie was an animal that her loss was easier to bear and easier for Dr. Young and Juliet to give comfort? Or was it luck and the lack of it to have encountered gentle care for my cat and harsh care for my parents? In A Natural History of Love, Diane Ackerman writes that pets help bridge that no man's land between us and nature. When I think now of Sophie's last days, I think that because she was an animal, her loss felt more a part of the natural order with its inevitable seasons and cycles of life and death. Humans spend so much of our lives railing against the idea of dying or pretending that it doesn't exist or dreaming of eternal youth or wishing to prolong our lives. And maybe it's that fighting that made the experience of my parents' deaths feel unbearable and inhumane and made the death of my cat seem exceptionally human. I don't know how you can read that without choking up. I'm all choked up just hearing it again. You have great poise and you read beautifully. I mean, a lot of people don't do a good service to their own words. And and that was just, I am sure anyone listening is now kind of snuffling and snuffling like I am and looking for a hanky and going, oh my goodness. That is just (laughs) the most overarching, inclusive, just universal uh, appreciation of how lucky we are when we can go through a pet's death as you did with grace and dignity and honesty and openness. And the fact that the medical system is as utterly lacking in it now as it was when your mother and mine died so many decades ago is just a sad fact of life. And and you ask in there, I wonder why it is. And do you wonder? Because I know that Vinny, you said that vet tech was crying and your vet yeah, was, was crying. Lovely. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. feeling, it's not that they aren't, I've never seen a human doctor or nurse cry when somebody dies. Sorry, but I just haven't, whether it's in real life or on ER. But vets feel it deeply. So it's not like, well, uh, never mind. We knew they were going to die before you anyway. I I don't think it's that. I don't know what allows that. Do you think it's part of what inspires someone to become a vet instead of a human doctor? Some kind of a compassionate or empathetic gene? I'm not sure. I mean, one thing that, I mean, Sophie died quite a long time ago. My mom died a very long time ago. And part of what took me such a long time to write this piece was that I wasn't quite sure what the answers to that question was of why I'd had these two incredibly different experiences and what was universal about it and what was just luck, which is why I asked those questions at the end. And I do have to point out that there are definitely exceptions to the, you know, what I've said about my experience with human doctors. And I know some absolutely lovely doctors. My, my cousin is a breast cancer oncologist, and she's one of the most warmest, most empathetic people I've met in my entire life. Um, actually, when this piece was published, I received an email from a doctor at Yale um, who thanked me for writing the piece and said that they're working really hard to change care so that people don't have this experience and patients don't suffer the way my mom had suffered and that patients' families have that comfort um, so I think there's many lovely, wonderful doctors out there working really hard to change this. But and I think, you know, my mom did die quite a long time ago. Um, so in a lot of places it has changed. And there's hospice care that um, because my parents died suddenly, we never had that. Um, but I've heard really great experiences that people have in hospice. But I do think there is there are many doctors that, you know, are um, – I have a hard time coping with 
the depth of what they witness, you know, so I'm not sure if it's some of it is just the human, how, you know, how, I even wonder how I would do if, you, you know, if I saw constant human death and suffering, would I have to harden myself to that? I don't know. I'm not quite sure why um, some people do harden themselves. I don't think I could be a doctor for that reason. I don't know that I could harden myself to that. But I don't I, even know if I could be a vet. I don't know if I could handle right, the loss of all of this, animals. All just, it's so intense. It's so real. It's so <laughs> connected with you know so many emotions. I would, I would, I would sort of in, in a in a knee jerk kind of thought. You know, people's relationships with the humans that they leave are complicated. They're rarely pure purely happy, purely good, purely resolved. You've never really said everything you wanted to. You might have those periods of time where you were on the outs with whoever the person is who dies. So it's it's not like a pure stream. And that, that phrase unconditional love is so abused and misused. And of course, dogs and cats don't give you unconditional love. They, they don't even have conditions. They, have no, they wouldn't know what that was about. What do you mean? I'm going to give someone conditional love, but you get the unconditional version. So I have to think that we can allow ourselves as you and I were both teenagers when our mothers died, it's an awfully tough time to lose, um, you know, especially a same-sex parent. So who knows? I mean, that, that's like all the cards are up in the air there. But at least as adults, when we lose a person we love or a pet we love, it, it's, I think, easier to access the, the pure sadness and grief about the pet because you don't have all those complicated things where you have resentment, guilt, frustration, sorry, all that other stuff, you know, kind of mixed in. Possibly. I mean, most yeah. of us don't have a whole lot of unfinished business with our pets. Yeah, I agree. It's a very pure, less complicated love. Yeah. And, um, and but at the same time, people, I think in our culture, especially American culture, we don't encourage people to share grief and that's share right. loss. That's we don't right. have the rituals. And that's people right. do. And I, I did. I felt that shame sometimes telling my friends of how upset I was about Sophie because I thought they might look down on me for feeling it for a cat. Although at the same time, when I felt, you know, enormous grief over my parents, and I still, even after 24 years, I still get very sad about missing both my parents often. And it's still not something that's often brought up in polite conversation. Right. Um, yeah. You know, oh, I miss my mom so much. She died 24 years ago. You know, it's not, <laughs> not something people love to hear. <laughs> it's not something people go, yeah, well, you know, my mother died too. Okay, so you're 62 and your mother was 85. I don't think it really compares. But, you know, yeah. not, that it's a, not that it's a shopping cart like TripAdvisor and like who had the, the worst age at which to lose a parent. And of course, there's no right age to lose a pet. But I, I just want to say that I love that you remember that your little gerbil is, is, is planted in a, in a chocolate Pop-Tarts box in the old garden. And, you know, all of our all the loves that we have buried with all of the pets through our lives, they they all belong in a chocolate Pop-Tart box somewhere, breathing in some <laughs> cheerful fumes as they go across the Rainbow Bridge, as it's called. Margo, it's been such a pleasure to to both read and hear your beautiful writing. I'm looking forward to having you back in a few months for your, your wonderful new collection, Kissing in America. But I hope you'll share with me some of the comments you got from people, because I think this whole issue of, you know, allowing ourselves grief around pets and, and, and how important it is to support that is just part of making us all more human. We lose the inhumans and it, and it does allow us to become more human. Thank you, Tracy. It meant so much to me to get the comments on the New York Times website from people sharing their grief over their pets. I feel like the more we share these things, it helps all of us heal and helps our whole culture accept grief and loss and helps everybody. And, And bad feelings are okay. We don't all have to be happy all the time. You know, you don't always have to say, have a good day. You can just say, hope you have the best day you possibly can, given whatever challenges you are facing, you know. 
I know I always say if America had a Day of the Dead, it would be sponsored by Xanax. Let's move away from that or a corporate sponsorship. It's okay to it's okay to grieve. It's like yes, let's let's make sure we over medicate ourselves so we can't have any natural feelings at all. <laughs> well, this is a very natural feeling, and and you've inspired it in a lot of people. Thank you for it so much, Margaret. Look forward to having you back sometime soon. Thank you. Take care. I'll be right back after this quick word with the rabbi. This show is supported by Vectra and Vectra 3D, the safe and effective parasite treatments you put on your pet's skin every month to create an invisible shield that repels and kills parasites on contact. Parasites that are a health hazard to all members of your family. Vectra is the anti-flea topical treatment that kills all three life cycles of the flea. Vectra 3D is the anti-tick protection, only for dogs, not intended for cats, but after the two-hour drying period, they can be around a dog who's been treated. Vectra is waterproof and safe for dogs, cats, and for the people in your family, too, with protection proven to last a full 30 days. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality pure omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils, which our bodies cannot produce but need on a daily basis. Omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, are natural anti-inflammatories used by the body for skin, bone, and joint health and for brain function. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness to provide their oils to people and their pets for optimal health on a cellular level. I am back with Rabbi Douglas Krantz. Those of you that live in Westchester, especially in Armonk, I think you hold him in very high esteem. He was the founding rabbi of the congregation. I'm going to pronounce it wrong. B'nai Yisrael. I don't know if you, have, if you pronounce the Y or not, Rabbi Doug, but I just have to explain the extraordinary reason that a rabbi is on Dog Talk and Kitties too. So I'm at the 50th wedding anniversary of people who are so dear to me that I actually drove all the way into New York City for this beautiful dinner party where I never leave Vermont anymore, as many of you have probably figured out by now. And I am seated in a place of honor between the rabbi who had redone their vows and and of whom they were major members of his congregation and his wife. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know enough about what's going on in Palestine. How will I ever have a proper conversation? Uh, Maybe he's going to want to convert me. What will I do? And within a second, what comes up on his wife's cell phone is a picture of the most beautiful yellow lab you ever saw. And Rabbi Doug leaned across and said, really, you're interested in dogs and dog food? It's all I want to talk about. Rabbi Douglas Krantz, welcome to Dog Talk. It is great to have a rabbi who is this passionate about, I'm sure, many other things too, but dogs and how to feed them properly. So it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. And I have to tell you, it's great to talk to somebody who wrote a Bible from a rabbinic perspective. Oh, what that's a good a, that's point. awesome. What a yes, I mean I've point. I've wanted to talk to the author of the other Bible, <laughs> but you're you're not you're not far behind. I believe in Bibles. Oh my and I've God. been reading and I've been reading yours. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Well, you know, what higher praise? I don't think one can get higher praise than that. You're right. You know, I just missed that Bible connection. Absolutely. And then of course I, I expected a rabbi to be somebody with, I don't know, a long beard and, and you know, severe clothes and a severe, you know, sort of aspect to him. 
and you were like so hip and cool and part of the world and involved in politics. And you come from Berkeley originally and you're politically active. And you were just like, well, maybe I would have converted if I'd ever met a rabbi like that. It's hard hard when you're raised as an atheist, but you could have, you you, you might have made some inroads. So you have this beautiful lab and we get to talking about dog food and I've always said, and this is rather funny when you think about it, that the three things you really shouldn't discuss at a dinner party are religion, hello, politics, and what to feed your pets. Because people are more passionate about the third than about the other two. People are so opinionated and they're so exercised and they're so angry and they don't know whether they're coming or going and they just have very strong feelings. Tell a little the story of your odyssey, a 10-year odyssey to find out what should I be feeding my beloved pet. Uh it really started when we were discussing the dietary laws in the book of Leviticus and two members of the temple told us about something called the CSA, a community supported agriculture farm. And we started, uh, we made the temple a drop off site, created an interfaith group of people, 70 families at one point to pick up vegetables um, for six months during the year. And we all had to learn to cook. And it was really my first introduction to real food. And then shortly thereafter, I was having dinner with a professor from Al-Quds University in East Jerusalem, and he took home the leftovers for his dog. And, and I started to think about, what should we be feeding our dog? And, and the truth is, is that I, I, I spoke to a vet, and I had no idea. And I, he said to be very careful, this diet's complex, and I didn't really know anything about it. And it's been on my mind for years. And then when we met you and I went to your website and clicked a link and found out what I could feed my dog, who weighs 65 pounds and how much and all of this, he had his first real food dinner, a breakfast actually a couple of weeks ago. And it reminded me of a scene. I don't know if you remember this from Jack London's Call of the Wild. No, remind me. When the dog first experiences snow, he doesn't know what it is. He wasn't sure what to do. He was tentative in the book. And, and our dog, Russell, had smelled human food, but he'd, he, real food, he'd never eaten it. So I sort of started to feed him, and, and he started to eat it, and he loved it. And he made the transition with no stomach problems, nothing. And it was like one of the most thrilling times of my life, and now I cook for the dog. <laughs> you know, great. what's great is, is that your joy in discovering that what you said to me was for 10 years, I kept thinking something doesn't what make I, sense. Yes. I'm feeding this dog, this highly processed, indistinguishable dry food in a bag. I don't really understand right. why that's the only thing he's allowed to eat. And my vet has made me feel very uncomfortable to stray from it at all. And, right, right, you know, your, yes. your instincts, your natural intelligence, your logic, I mean, a rabbi is a thinker, right? I mean, it's one of the main things, isn't it? Isn't that part of the rabbinical culture? Yeah, you well, think a lot. Listen, sure. And diet's important. And what we eat is important. Even in the Catholic service, if you think about it, the altar in the ancient temple was about a meal. And so, so in the Catholic church, it's about eating and communally and what we eat and how we eat. And it's all very important. And so it's it's really quite a thing. And it, to tell you the truth, I consider what we've done a religious experience. It's a thrill. Wow. And it's very, well, it's very exciting to actually know what everybody in your family is eating. We had no You're idea right. what the dog was eating. You're right. We had no idea. Totally ignorant. 
Well, it was right? invisible. We, it was invisible. It was cloaked yeah. in another in a, in a form that didn't make a lot of sense. No, it didn't, and 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 it's been bothering me for years. And your, your website liberated me completely. That is so, of course, makes me humbled and delighted and honored. And 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 it was just so extraordinary to find somebody who had wrestled with this this question, this philosophical question of why can't dogs eat real food? And should, wouldn't it be better for them to eat real food? Wouldn't it be healthier? Wouldn't it be just like the better decision or choice? And you kept being told you can't do that. You mustn't do that. Right. And yes, they were, oh right. my God, the stomach and you'll have vomiting and viarrhea and it won't know what to do. And and sure enough, the right. crazy thing about nature is if you know, if you do the right thing, right. it all turns out just fine. And there are people you know. to this day, um, people that's, that because they have been so indoctrinated by their veterinarians that look at me aghast when they discover that any human food goes to my dogs, much less, you know, a lot of human food. And they say, I would, this is the part that just is funny. I don't know. I don't think we talked about it, but I'm I'm sure other people have heard this. Oh, I would never feed him human food ever because then he would beg at the table. And I said, no, I never feed from the table. Actually, when we stand up after dinner, we go in the kitchen and they get to lick the plates with appropriate leftovers on them. And they said, oh, no, no, no. Then they would beg at the table I said, no, you don't understand. They've been smelling that human food since it came out of your car raw in a plastic cover. They've known what that food was. They've been smelling it year in and year out. It wasn't because they hadn't had it in their mouth yet that they are or are not begging. People somehow think that it's invisible to dogs unless you give it to them. And once you give it to them, what will happen? They will eat you out of house and home. They will open the fridge and get in there themselves. I mean, they should, right? I mean, that's a good place for a dog to graze. If it's good for you, it's good for them. So what are you feeding Russell now? Well, I've been feeding him. uh, It's actually, it's evolving because I'm learning. I I made some beef stock. And so I fed him for that meal, beef and broccoli and string beans and um, some dried apricot and, and sweet potato. Wow. And he loves it. Wow. Yeah, it's that's all mixed cool. together. Yeah, and I know the proportions because of that that uh, link on your website. It. I, I have to balance say, it, Balance yes. It is amazing. He Dr. Sean Delaney um is the, the owner of Balance It and it was yeah. a, a a special service, if you will, to veterinarians for either for their clients that absolutely insisted on home cooking but knew that they had to have the food be balanced. Or dogs that were so ill or unwell that they couldn't eat commercial food or had to eat something special. And over the years, it it evolved into there being a software, which you experienced on their website, that's free to the public. It's a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar piece of software because it's it's – columns that show you protein, vegetable, and carb, and the combinations that you can give and the amount, depending on the size of your dog. And apparently, it's one of those things like, you know, the – that wonderful movie, the imitation game. Like it seems like there might be right, right. things, but it's actually 200 billion because if you combine right. the sweet right. potato and the chicken, and then you don't use the stream beans and so forth and so on. And then they sell a very yeah. excellent, high superb quality supplement that you give no matter which of those combinations you make. But you know, when right. you say apricots right. and sweet right. potatoes and beef, and you think that sounds kind of middle Eastern, that's kind of cool. Yes, you know, it, well, it was, it was, yeah, short ribs and stuff, but it's like, it's, it, you know, Every time I feed him, uh, I I think about what a victim I've been of the industrialization of food. Yes. Across the board, from from all the supermarket chains, 
which I rarely go into. We have a small market near us that sells mostly local or East Coast stuff. That's pretty and, cool. Um, oh, it is great. It's, it's great you live in Maryland, I, yeah, I right? Say it. Yeah. No, yeah. Delaware, Delaware. Delaware. Nobody knows Delaware. Everyone oh, I mean, says I Maryland. Think I'm all confused nobody. myself. I'm like everybody does. Yeah, so everybody stupid. does. Yeah, that's good. Nobody no lives in Delaware. <laughs> no, Delaware is just a place where we have corporations, and why don't we pay taxes? Exactly. 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 So it's really been it, it's really a part of an ongoing educational process designed to liberate our family from the from really from the chains of industrialized food. And and I think we need to look at it that way. And I think it's a great um, way to look at it. We've been imprisoned and intimidated, uh, intimidated. Yeah. And, and so I'm I'm overjoyed by this, and I can't wait to. Well, you now I'm that so you're a retired rabbi, it. you're only on the board of many important, you know, international well, thought pro, uh, thought experiments <laughs> or thought tanks or something, yeah. think tanks. If you can proselytize. I mean, you don't have exactly will. The, the, you know, the podium you used to, but you can. You can say to people, be free, enjoy. You know, I'm, uh, I've, gonna, I've recently, put, since, yeah. since, since I had your enthusiasm, I was, I, I've always cooked some some vegetables for my dogs that I keep in a, like in a, a big bowl and then that goes in with their food. Mm -hmm. And I was preparing mm -hmm. it. And it, sometimes it's not only cheaper and more convenient, but actually fresher to use frozen vegetables because they are frozen yes. directly when they come from the field. Um, and the right. stuff in our supermarkets has been sitting around and, you know, you cut it up. It's, it's labor intensive. So here were these broccoli, sure. broccoli florets. And I thought, well, what the heck? She loves ice cubes. So I tossed her a broccoli sure. frozen one florette. I want to tell you, this is the first time I be, I'm letting this be known on Dog Talk. This is the coolest treat for your dogs. This dog doesn't like raw carrots, raw vegetables in general. She'll eat cooked ones, but it never occurred to me that a piece of frozen broccoli would be delicious, a taste sensation. She's nuts about it. Oh my so in the supermarket, there's bags of every kind of frozen vegetable. These make Absolutely. great snacks because no calorie, yeah. lots of vitamins, and so fun. And it makes you happy. Yeah, and I buy, yeah. And I buy now big quantities. I bought all of, a lot of this at Costco. Yes. Just because it was great. And you can just freeze the bags from Costco. I never thought about that. Yep. And giving a dog a frozen broccoli thing is like giving a dog a martini before it dinner. It is. Great. Absolutely. With <laughs> yeah. the olives, right? I used to, right, I used to know right, someone right. who said that martinis, that they always got their, they took care of the vegetable portion of their meal with their martini because they had either <laughs> an onion or an olive. So right, there you go. Right. This is the onion or olive in it. What What is the, the thing that you that you would wish to tell other people, I mean, other than, you know, feel free to do it. I mean, is there a moment you think if you're telling people or looking at you askance, how do you point out to them, the, or you have to, to me, but the, the joy and the pleasure and the relief in knowing what you're giving your dog and knowing that it's really going towards good health, not in any way going through maybe towards some imagined ill health? Yeah, I, I, I think, first of all, I think it's, it's liberation in two ways. I think you liberate yourself from the tyranny of industrial, uh, industrialized food. And secondly, I think you liberate your dog from being imprisoned in a world of eating something that's synthetic garbage. And, and I really think that that's, that that's a sign of self-respect for yourself as a human being and respect for the dog you love and who gives you so much joy. So I think that that's what I want people to know. This is, this is an act of liberation. And, and a very important one that we all need to engage in 
in the larger sphere of our eating choices. Especially for our children, our human children. People, I've seen the cars pouring in and out of. There's no point in me telling you the names of them. We all know McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken, all the rest of it. And really, you know, the, the food scientists are geniuses. And they, it's been proven, yeah. both with pet food yeah. and with human fast food, that the food scientists have created chemical combinations which drive you to eat it, to want more of it, to crave it. And Absolutely. there's something in that that's just, if nothing else, leave aside the ingredients, leave aside the preparation method. The, the craving yep. of it, the, the addictive quality of food, thinking of all the harm that that does. Food should be a satisfaction and a pleasure. And as you said, something you share. You share in the, crea- in the creation of it and the, and the production of it and, the, and the, the, the ingestion of it. And so it's important for, for people to understand that. I will say that the, the brave new world for you, now that you are so a devotee of, all right, let's push, the, let's push uh, to the outer limits – I have never tried raw frozen food before for my dogs. And I know there's several very good companies. And mm-hmm. people tout highly the value of a lot of people feed only raw, but of at least incorporating some raw into a dog's diet. Into a cat's diet is supreme. It's best for them than anything else. So there's a company really? in really there's a company in California called Boo Boo's Best. And this gal got in touch with me. It's her own company. It's grass-fed beef. I mean, you look at the ingredients, there's no way you could even afford to feed yourself with these ingredients all the time. There's a freeze-dried snack of green lip mussels that they also have, which, I mean, are just the most incredible power source for joints. And, I mean, you see it in a lot of joint supplements, green lip mussels. But these are the real green lip mussels. But the frozen food and the frozen bonbons um, have the most of amazing ingredients, and it gets shipped out directly to your house on dry ice. So you can keep wow. a container of that in your fridge, defrost it in your fridge, and give a scoop of that in one of the meals a day or make it one of the meals of the day. And right. people just swear by the fact that it keeps a dog slim. It's really great for their eyes, their coat. I mean, people have touted raw forever. When I saw the ingredients in this, I, I she is, in fact a sponsor on my Radio Pet Lady Network show, Holistic Vets Now, because I, I waited a long time to find a company that I thought had that kind of heart and soul behind it. This is one lady's, right. you know, vision and how she can afford, I mean, in one of them, the one that, that I tried is made of goat meat. I mean, how cool is that? Talk about an alternative oh, protein. Oh, that's amazing. I know. Something yeah. different, something yeah. your dog's system hasn't seen before, which is a good thing. You know, not the same old, yeah. same old. So. Um, I'm going to see about uh, about letting you know about Boo Boo's Best and see if, if Russell Krantz, the rabbi's son, wants to try a little of that, too. Anyway, well, that would be great. I think you'll really enjoy it. Again, it's a kind of a thrill to see your dog eat a, a safely produced and then when defrosted, you know, totally safe to feed food. Right. Vets are terrified. Oh, right. my God, you're going to get salmonella. You're going to get this. No, you're not really. You're not an idiot. You don't go and, you know, put right. raw chicken, you know, in your hands on into no, your plate. No. You take a spoon no, no. and then you wash the spoon. I think you might be kind exactly. of thrilled. Push the push the, uh, the the limits a little bit. Thank you so much for coming here and letting everybody know about the great revelation you had. There are revelations to be had in many places in life, right? So great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the Look privilege forward. We're going to have a beautiful show. picture of Russell um, on the newsletter with, with the show when, when it's podcast after you guys hear it live. And it's wonderful to know when people see the light and enjoy it. Thanks so much, Rabbi Doug Krantz. It's Thanks. great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you.
I'll be right back after this quick word with Stacey Coleman, the director of the Animal Farm Foundation. This show is supported by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who has created many different low-dust litters for the health of all members of the family, for the special needs of every cat, from kittens to old kitties, and long-haired and those with out-of-litter box problems who can get back in the box with Catattract Litter. Precious Cat's new litter, Touch of the Outdoors, is made with field grasses grown in their own fields, bringing the natural scent of the outdoors to provide environmental enrichment for indoor cats. This show is also brought to you by Vivimmune Chews, a natural supplement using Oxy-C Beta, a new active ingredient based on oxidized beta-carotene found in foods like red and orange vegetables. Vivimmune is a chewable that has been scientifically proven to support immune function in dogs and cats with the main benefits to joints, skin, and digestion, usually seen within a month. Modern life creates many stressors on a pet's immune system, which is further challenged as they age, and Vivimmune can help pets lead the healthiest possible life. I am back with Stacy Coleman, who is the director of the Animal Farm Foundation, which she's going to explain to us. I've known about it for a long time, talked about it on the show years ago. They're constantly working to change the negative image of the beloved pit bull. But the Majority Project is such a cool and dynamic way to get that message across. Stacy, it's great to have you here on Dog Talk. Welcome. Thank you so much, Tracy. I'm glad to have the opportunity. Let's talk first about Animal Farm Foundation, because it, it, in some ways it's kind of misleading because you really are a pit bull advocacy and sanctuary, right? We are. We advocate to end canine discrimination, and we have a shelter that we run on site where we take uh, dogs that shelters have labeled pit bull and we find them homes. So that they don't languish in a shelter situation or wind up not being allowed to live because there's just too many of them. Right. But you know what? I got to tell you, the good news is we're finding that um, it's a different day and finding homes for pit bull dogs is much easier than it's ever been. In fact, uh, pit bull dogs are one of the top pets all across the country, which is what makes the majority project such a great way to celebrate dogs and their families. They really are climbing up in the popularity ranks. Nothing will ever, I guess, knock out the old Labrador retriever. But pit bulls are climbing and climbing on the popularity scale. They are. They are usually, in, in most states, they're in the top five uh, family. Wow. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? Well, I just want to clarify, Animal Farm Foundation, when I first heard about it years ago, I got to say, when Dog Talk first started eight or nine years ago from Amy Sadler, I thought it was a sanctuary for farm animals. You know, there's those places, oh, the poor, the duck, the goat, the sheep, the whatever. Those are all over the place. And I thought, okay, but wait, what's that got to do with the pit bulls? And when you first were formed... There was very negative perception of pit bulls. They were greatly misunderstood and vilified for reasons that weren't even in any way scientific or had no logic to them. Do you think that this, let's call it a decade of change, more or less, do you see groups like yourself, because there are other pit bull advocacy groups, as having made the change? Or do you think that having the dogs in the homes and having other people meet them as the true sweethearts they are, is that what changed people? Well, you know, as much as I'd I'd like to say that uh, all of us advocates can take credit for it, we think the very best advocate for the dog is the dog himself. Yes, yes. Once you get to once you meet a dog, once you get to know a dog, once you see a dog labeled pit bull as part of a family, any of those negative misperceptions they go out the window because we believe what we see in front of us, and so often now we see these dogs living with 
everyday lives with everyday people. So would we basically say that that breed has been singled out by bad guys? We'll just call them bad guys with a capital B, capital G to use in not even just in fighting, but just in uh, harsh, rough gang neighborhood kind of lifestyle. And because that is their breed of choice for the most part, that that has created this negative image. I mean, the negative image has to have come from somewhere, right? I mean, Rottweilers and Dobermans, Rottweilers used to be used a lot in gang situations. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, those were a greatly feared and despised breed, but then the pities kind of, took their place, I guess, in these kind of street gangy kind of settings. Do you think that that is one of the problems that they've had to over, they as a breed have had to overcome? Yeah, I sure do. There's uh, uh, the dogs get uh, labeled with the same negative stereotype of the people that have been associated with them um, traditionally. And one of the things that's a little different for the pitbull dogs, uh, which didn't happen with the Rottweilers and the Dobermans, is that we have the internet now. Right. And so anything that goes on the internet stays there and it's accessible right. 24-7. And so if somebody's looking for something negative to say about a dog, they can certainly Google it and find something. I, I once uh, somebody said, well, somebody Googled and there were however many links for dog, pit bull dog attacks. And so I Googled Elvis lives in a trailer park and I got even more. So, oh my you goodness. Find, you can find anything. You can you find want whatever you internet. want to look for. You want to look for right. it, you'll find it. Let's talk about the Majority Project. I think it is an absolute brainchild. I think it's amazing because as I, as you, and I will have a link to the the Majority Project that goes with the, the podcast of this show. As you go through these slides that you've put together of people all across the country, every age, every color, every size, every shape, and that's the people and the dogs, they want to say, we're in the majority. Like it's, I guess that you were sort of playing on that one percent idea, right? I mean, the majority of, of pit, pit bull owners, the majority of people that have pit bulls absolutely adore them. Is That's really the point, is to show this huge cross-section of America that embraces the pit bull as beloved a family dog as any other dog. That's, you've got it exactly right. I think we should have you advocate for the uh, program all across the country because you've got that just right. And what we do is we let the dog owners label themselves. So there's a fill in the blank and you say, I am a, and you get to decide who it is you are and what you bring to your community or how you want to self-identify, but that you have a dog labeled Pitbull and that that dog is part of your, your family. And we wanted to show, because we knew, we knew that overwhelmingly so, the majority of Pitbull dogs lived wonderfully unremarkable lives in everyday homes, just as family pets. And that's what we need everybody to see. No more of the doom and gloom. Let's be happy about the pets that we have. You know, that's funny. Unremarkable lives. Who would think that that's what a dog would hope for? But if you're a breed that's under the gun, you want to be unremarkable. You just want to be quiet and invisible in your own happy home and not call any attention to yourself because the least little thing um, or one dog that that is a rogue, that behaves badly, that, I don't know, kills cats or goes after other smaller dogs. That one dog is simply a bad dog. And if it happens to be a pit bull who does it, unfortunately, that dog is whatever the opposite of an ambassador might be. But there are lots of dogs, unfortunately, that kill other small dogs and cats that go after them. I mean, it's it's nothing to do with breed. It's to do with the temperament of that individual. I mean, is that right. pretty, pretty fair to say that? 
Well, I think so, and I think it's because uh, dogs have dogs are animals that chase things. Yes. And so it's a dog behavior. It's not a breed behavior. It, it's dogs chase things, and overwhelmingly so, most dogs don't, but a few dogs do, and, and, and that's that. But it happens across the board. It's not breed specific. No, and the Weimaraners that I love, I didn't know when I adopted the first one and I had two resident cats that Weimaraners are well known to be cat chasers slash killers. I was really lucky with the first one. She wasn't, but the next one was not good. Let's just put it that way. So mm-hmm. there's a breed that is absolutely known to kill cats, quite frankly. But no one goes around going, oh, Weimaraners, oh, you own those cat killing dogs. You know, I mean, it's they haven't got the stigma, but that's the reality of that breed. They, right. But you know what? You've had a, your experience is very important and it's a good thing for for anybody who has an inclination to have uh, a prejudice against these particular dogs is that you've had two dogs and they were both very different from each other. That's and absolutely that's, right. That's what we say with the majority project is that that dogs are individuals and owners are individuals. And, and let's stop with all the stereotyping. It doesn't really it doesn't get anybody anywhere. The fact that that gang types will put a chain, you know, bigger than you'd need on a motorcycle around the neck of a pit bull and then, you know, prongy collars that have metal sticking out of them like something medieval. That really is no reflection on the dog. It's totally a reflection on the human trying to look tough or macho or scary. And somehow, true. I mean, yep. I mean, if you dress your pit bull up in pink cashmere, which people do you'd give a very different opinion. You know, you'd have a different reaction. How many people have you, or do you have a number of people that have already gotten involved, been a member of the majority project? You know, I don't know what the tally is right now because it changes every day. Um, The last time I checked, I think was yesterday afternoon, and we had uh, well over 7,000 fans and members on our Facebook page. So how do people that either have a pit bull and want to be in the majority project or just want to participate in this very positive message on behalf of a dog who has been maligned, how do people get involved? Uh, You can either visit us on our Facebook page or you can go to the website, which is themajorityproject.com, and the form is there to print off, and Uh you fill out your form, and you just take a picture. You can upload it right there on the website. We have some creative types too, who take their photos that they have already and, and put the words in the photos and submit those too. And I got to tell you, we don't have any hard and fast rules because this is all about having fun. Yes. So, uh, you know, send us your pictures if you want to. We have people who send in pictures of their cat with their pit bulls. Oh, that's say, I am funny. A cat. Yes. I am a pit bull dog owner. Or they said, uh, we got one yesterday that said, I am a, a yellow lab and I am a pit bull dog friend. And, and anything you want to send is good for us. That's really nice. It's important that people see a different view of it. I recently had a a lovely gal on called Georgia Cameron who came to the show because her father, Bruce Cameron, is a very uh, well-known author of of books that feature dogs. And he Mm -hmm. had mentioned that his daughter had sort of given up her her other career, which I didn't know at the time what it was, to work full-time in a Life is Better Rescue in Colorado. So I asked her how did they handle the problem of Denver and this breed ban. And it turns out that it's a little looser than it had seemed. And in some places, and I'm sure you know this, it's what you guys think about day and night, these ridiculous bans have been lifted. But that in Denver, she can actually drive a pit bull to a foster home as long as it's beyond a certain, I don't know, city limit or something. So you can drive your dog through, because I was once told you couldn't even drive through Denver with a pit bull in your car. 
but apparently the rules are a bit bizarre. Do you happen to know them or are you just so annoyed by them that you hope that it'll all go away if, if we lobby enough? I mean, it's just so asinine. Let's be honest. It is. It is. But you know what? We do keep track of what's happening with breed-specific legislation. And what we know is that all across the country, the trend is away from it. Every single month, we see more cities and towns and states that either repeal or reject breed-specific legislation than they do consider it or or, or um, put it in place. So breed-specific legislation is about to be a thing of the past. So that's great. Now we have to get to the point where when people see a pit bull on the sidewalk, they don't do that. Oh, I just happen to have to go to the other side of the other side of the sidewalk with my dog or with my child. <laughs> that's very hard for pit bull owners to deal with. It makes them feel really bad. And then, of well, course, makes the dogs I'm, not feel so great either because they're kind of very lovable dogs. They want to greet. Mm-hmm. They're intense because they're physically right. strong and muscular. I had one punched me in the eye with her nose. She was trying to kiss me at a, at a, at a local shelter. I was considering her, but she was like, I was trying to find a dog that would calm my dog down. This was not uh-huh. this little pity, but they are strong. I mean, they're powerful dogs and they're exuberant. Yeah. They're, they're not like, ah, whatever kind of dogs. They're exuberant. So well, I got to tell you, my little six pound dog once blackened my eye too. He was jumping up and I was bending over at the same time. Sometimes so. you think you're going to get a nose job <laughs> if they hit you in the nose when you're going down and right. they're coming up with their skull. Right. So right. what do you, what, what do you say to people? I mean, I'm sure this topic comes up, I, you know, it just feels lousy to have people act all fearful and, and, and harsh and, and negative towards you just because you're walking along. Right. Well, you know what? That's, that is another purpose of, of the majority project is we want dog owners to feel and recognize that they are part of our, our larger group, that the days of being ostracized because of what your dog looks like, it's just over. So let's not let those few squeaky wheels define anymore how we yes. live with our dog. Yes. And uh, let's stand together and, and show the world that we love our dogs just as much as everybody else does. Now, Animal Farm Foundation originally, if I understood it, and you may not even have been there eight or ten years ago, was it a place for for pit bulls that had, quote-unquote, issues and and were not easily adoptable and therefore they were either going to stay with you forever or or be in some way retrained or rehabilitated to become more adoptable? Was that the original um, sort of mission? No, actually, when we first started doing it, what we, what we would do is take dogs from shelters that were basically the cream of the crop, dogs labeled pit bull, because nobody was adopting them from the shelters. And so we could really pick dogs oh, I see. that were just dead water, go home dogs. But as, <laughs> but as uh, the times have been changing, what we're finding is that shelters are, are placing those dogs on their own. So what we do now, more than anything, is we focus on helping shelters with particular dogs that they have or or boosting and, and updating their uh, shelter policies so that they, too, can eliminate some of the discrimination in their own agencies. And uh, uh, the days of having to uh, help people uh, place even the, the cream of the crop dogs, that's over, too, because shelters and rescues are doing so much better. They really are. It's all evolving so nicely. And and, and anyone who goes to a shelter and sees, depending 
depending on the size of the shelter and the, and the energy level, Southampton Shelter, which is the official shelter of the show, has a fair share of pit bulls. There's, there's some inner city areas nearby where I think there's, you know, a lot of unspayed and neutered dogs and there's some flow of dogs in that way. But they're not necessarily the dogs that are having the hardest time in the shelter. They're actually a pretty e- mellow, easygoing dog. There's other dogs that don't. I, I love this word. They don't shelter well. But pits are pretty amazing. They're, they're very adaptable from, from what I've seen. I don't know if that's something that you all believe. You, you have much more experience than I do. But they seem to yeah. be a dog that can adapt to a high-energy lifestyle, to a more laid-back, and in terms of the home that where they'd fit. There's not like very they're, – they're okay. Many of them, with, they don't have separation anxiety issues. They can spend more time alone and not you know resent it. They seem to be very adaptable. It, it must be from their kind of – um, the mixture of the different breeds that make up the pit bull, because it's not just one kind of dog, one gene pool, that they're, they seem to be very adaptable. I think a lot of them are a just-add-water dog. I love that phrase. <laughs> but it does seem to be the case, right? I mean, they're not like, well, you can't have this one because he needs this and that and the other thing. And Well, you know, I guess it depends on the dog. And I think that pit bull dogs are are pretty adaptable because dogs in general are pretty adaptable. You know, when you think about it, what we expect from dogs is is a great deal from a different species. And and they adapt very well to living with humans. And pit bull dogs are no exception to that. That's a really good point. In fact, they are just like the majority of dogs meant to be living with people. That's Mm -hmm. That's what we created them for. We created them. So, you know, we should enjoy them and enjoy them on on our terms and even on their terms sometimes. Well, the majority project, I think, really puts into, you know, a picture being worth a thousand words. I think that the pictorial vision of how many different kinds of people and how many different kinds of places, how many different ages and backgrounds and, and professions, how many how many different people's lives are enhanced by pit bulls is really the majority project makes that clear as a bell. So Stacy, thank you for your wonderful work there and and for having and having come such a long way really in a not very very in a fairly short time in in improving things. I know you always feel there's more improvement to be had and of course there is, but it seems like you're already coming a long way. So those cities where pit bulls are in the top 5 of popularity, you're part of the majority. Be sure you go to the majorityproject.com and let them know who you are and what your dog looks like cuz no one pit looks like any other and that's another beautiful thing about them. They're such individuals. Stacy, thank you so much. Stay in touch, let us know how things go and if anything important comes up in the pit bull world, you be sure and come back and let us know. Will do. Thank you so much for the for the discussion. It was a pleasure. Always, always great to, to be upbeat, isn't it? So something it is. good to talk about. Thank you so much. It is. All right. Thank Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I also did say um, to the people at the Pitbull organization and some others that if they have anyone wants, is making a documentary, would like to make a documentary, a short one or a long one, the Dog Film Festival submissions are open. So please go to dogfilmfestival.com. See what it takes to submit a film and learn more about the festival itself. Tickets are for sale and lots of opportunities for lots of people to get involved before October 2nd and 3rd, which is when the, the film festival is. Have a great day. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches. And we'll talk again next week. Bye for now.